and I was all of 23 or 24 years old. And the bureau chief at the time, a man named Stuart Lurie, was very nice. And he said, let's give you a try. Why don't you go to the White House and you can tell our viewers what the president is doing that no day. No pressure. What's on, this, what's on the president's schedule? I thought, okay, I'll try. And I was dreadful. I was like, today the president is meeting with National Security <laughs> Advisor, the big new Brzezinski. I'm Danielle Weisberg. And I'm Carly Zakin, and we are the co-founders of The Skim. You're listening to our podcast, Skimmed from the Couch, where we talk to other female entrepreneurs about what it's like to get to the top and then what it's like along the way. We're talking bad advice, the really, really low days, the management mistakes, everything that goes into the real stuff. No BS. We started The Skim from a Couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it all began? We're on a couch. So, drum rolls. Please. We are very, very excited to welcome Katie Couric to the couch. She's one of the most recognized faces in journalism. You're probably one of the millions of people who have tuned into one of Katie's shows over the years, whether that was the Today Show, Getting There with Us at the Skim, or the CBS Evening News, which, by the way, anchoring the CBS Evening News made her the first solo female anchor of a major nightly news broadcast. But that's not where her story starts. Katie was bitten by the journalism bug early on. She started interning at local news stations in high school, worked as a desk assistant out of college, and the rest is history. And before we get started, we are so excited to partner with Katie on Getting There, a show all about inspiring women and how they got to be where they are today. If you haven't already seen it, what's wrong with you? But also (laughs) head to our YouTube or Facebook page to watch all of the episodes. In the meantime, though, let's get back to the beginning. Katie, welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here, and it's going to be hard for me to resist not turning the questions to you all because I'm I'm so proud of you and what you all have been able to build and accomplish and as you continue to grow and expand. Is it hard for you to not ask people questions? Like when you're going through your day-to-day, are you like, wait, I would like to lead this? Well, (laughs) you know, sometimes. I mean, at this point in my career, I do – I appreciate the opportunity to share my experiences and to sometimes share my point of view uh, because I have been in the position of asking people questions my entire life, and I still have a lot of sort of intellectual curiosity that guides my daily daily activities. But, um, you know, I, I, I love talking. I love listening. I love asking questions. So I'm, I'm excited to do any of the above. <laughs> So I want to go back to the beginning. And how did you know that you wanted to be a journalist? And kind of walk us through um, sort of the the first kind of career moments where you knew that you're like, I am going to figure out my own way here. I knew that I had certain attributes or characteristics or qualities that would position me well for a career in journalism. And that was my curiosity. That was my desire to dissect and unpack complicated things, something you all do daily on the skim. My uh, extremely outgoing personality. You know, I never met a stranger. Were you always like that? I was. Like, starting at five years old, I I was just always very, very um, extroverted. And I remember when I was 10 years old, I had two older sisters, and I would look through their yearbook and look at the pictures, and then I'd go to the high school football games, and I'd turn around and say, 
hey, you're Barbara, you're Barbara McLaughlin, aren't you? Oh, my God. And they'd be like, what? And I'd say, I saw your picture in my sister's yearbook, oh and I recognize you. So I think that, you know, I just have always been just very comfortable talking to strangers. I, I Something that actually has really enriched my life because I think those personal connections and feeling like, you know, you can talk to anyone and learn from anyone has that's really served me well. So, you know, but I was interested in advertising. I tried to get a job at an advertising agency when I was a senior in college, and they all told me to go get my MBA. And that was something that I just didn't think was in the cards for me. Now I kind of wish I had, quite frankly, gotten an MBA because I think women really need to learn more about business. You know, I think that does put men at a distinct advantage. They are just, I think, conditioned to know more about money, finances, business, and they feel much more comfortable in that that setting. But anyway, having said that, I just, I loved, I loved writing. I was actually a really pretty good writer early on when my eighth grade teacher read my essay in front of the class. I was so stoked about that. My dad was a print journalist, and I think he recognized that I was a good writer. And I was also a master procrastinator, so I worked well under pressure. So all those things combined, I think, made me think, well, this might be a fun career for me. And I'm a bit of a ham. I don't mind being on camera. But um, so I thought, okay, let's give it a whirl. And I just worked really, really hard. And when people told me I was terrible, I didn't believe them. So one of my favorite stories um, that you recount, um, because it's just so ridiculous so I can't wait for you to recount it is um, when uh, an executive saw you on camera for the first time and what they said oh yeah well I was at CNN in the Washington Bureau and I was all of 23 or 24 years old and the bureau chief at the time a man named Stuart Lurie who had come from the Chicago Tribune or the Sun Times I can't remember was very nice and he said let's give you a try why don't you go to the White House and you can tell our viewers what the president is doing that no day. pressure what's on this what's on the president's schedule I thought okay I'll try and I was dreadful I was like today the president is meeting with national security <laughs> advisor the big new Brzezinski and I was awful I looked super young you know, because I sort of, you know, had this young face, and um, and I was I was dreadful. And I remember being getting ready to go, and the anchors in Atlanta said, "Who is that girl? She looks like she's 16 years old." Talk about a confidence deflator right before I went. So you know, he called the assignment desk and said, "I I never want to see her on the air again," and that was translated to me by the assignment editor. And of course, I was crushed. But at the same time, I thought, you know, he's probably right. I probably wasn't ready for that. And it just made me more intent on on doing it and getting the experience I needed. So I had I had the authority and I had the confidence to do a much better job. And that's what I did. I went into local news and I just kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And as Malcolm Gladwell says, you know, you have to do something for 10,000 hours to become proficient at it. And, uh, and that's what I did. And I think, you know, one common characteristic of successful people in general is I think they don't let the turkeys get you down. Like if someone says you can't, you don't believe them and you, sit, you figure out a way that you can. So you worked at, your, at the newspaper in college and then after school you started as an assistant at a news desk. How'd you stand out? Um, 
Well, I would, yeah, I was a desk assistant, which basically meant I would get coffee, rip wire coffee. That was my first job, too. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think that I asked a lot of questions. I tried to take advantage of opportunities. I would ask reporters if I could watch them in the edit room. Um, you know, I was only there at ABC News doing that for about nine months before I then went to CNN. But um, I think I just tried to really, I, you know, say yes to everything. You know, if somebody would ask me to do something, I would say yes. I, I really was sort of an eager beaver, right? I, I did all those things and, you know, I never said, oh, I can't do that. I'm going to a party. If there was an opportunity to work on a weekend, I would do it. Wendy Walker, my really close friend, and I would go in on Sundays and just volunteer. So we just really, you know, treated it like graduate school and took advantage of every opportunity. And I think initiative and really just saying, I want to do more. What can I do? How can I help you? I remember going up to Don Farmer, who was uh, a reporter on 2020 at the time at ABC News, and I went to his office. I said, may I, can I come in? And he said, sure. I said, I have a list of story ideas for 2020. Okay, so I'm 22 years old. And I'm saying, I think you should do a story on compulsive gambling. There's a compulsive gambling center in Pikesville, Maryland, that I think is really interesting. And I've never heard of that. So I think like just the very fact that I walked in and said, here are five story ideas. And I'm sure probably a couple of them were decent. Mm -hmm. He I really caught his attention. Yeah. And when he went to CNN and had a show from noon to two called Take Two with his wife, Chris Curl, he said he wanted me to come and work on, work on it. So I distinguished myself by, I think, having the gumption and the courage to say, hey, you know, do something that wouldn't be expected of a 22-year-old desk assistant. What did you do to stand out, Danielle? Oh, oh here you go, the interviewer. <laughs> I, know, I knew. It well, was I'm coming. curious. Um, I think it it was a lot of the same. So the job is, I remember. Oh my gosh! So I, I started out as a desk assistant at the DC bureau for NBC News, and the fact that you were a desk assistant gave us all hope. Um, <laughs> and you know, you had to be there at like the crack of dawn and all different the, schedules, yes, right? Before the sun would come up, and one of the things. Um, that we had to do was make sure that the newspapers got delivered in the specific order per um, the talent. So, you know, this one would want uh, the Chicago Sun-Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Post in this specific order. And then the next one would want the uh, Times, uh, the Post, and something else, like the New York Post, right, in USA Today, in this specific order. And I just got it right. And for so many other people, they got it wrong. And it was like, you would get screamed at if you got it wrong. Okay, there's so much wrong with that. I know. Like the fact that that's what they're spending their time worrying about, the order of their newspapers. You don't have to name names, but that's ridiculous. But I got it right. (laughs) And it was a little thing. And that went a long way that they were like, oh, I can give her something that actually. Right. It it made them confident in your ability to do other things. Yes. And my dad used to joke that he would see me pushing the newspaper cart behind the hits on CNBC in the morning and you'd be like I'm so glad I paid for college (laughs) but it's true just even taking little tasks do taking them seriously doing them well um, can get you noticed by other people and then expand your Mm -hmm. your duties so as you kind of made your way kind of up the up the ladder in the 80s and in uh, the news 
world at that point, the news environment was definitely a boys club. Mm-hmm. And I'm very curious, how did you kind of push past that and just kind of keep your eye on the prize? And, you know, as the first time that we got introduced to you is when you were on the Today Show. And that's where you kind of became ingrained into the habits of millions every day and became the role model for millions of women like us. So how did you go from kind of the this this young woman with sort of gumption is like, I'm going to prove them wrong to navigate a pretty difficult working environment and working era for women to get to the Today Show. You know, it was hard, but it was also a a moment in time where women, I think, were entering broadcast news in a very real way. And they were no longer, I think, relegated to be assistants or production assistants. When I started out, you know, the, the hierarchy was mostly male. There were a few female correspondents at ABC News, for example, but most of the high power jobs went to men. Um, and I think that George Watson, who was the assistant bureau chief at ABC News, gave me some good advice. He said, don't just do feature stories because you'll get typecast as a cute girl who does fluffy stories. And I remember taking that to heart when I went into local news. I would cover all sorts of serious stories, crime stories, drug stories. I worked in Miami uh, in local news. And, and then Tim Russer gave me an opportunity to be the deputy Pentagon correspondent. And I thought, well, that isn't typecasting, right? You don't find that many women covering military issues and, you know, having to know the difference between an F-16 and an F-18A and an M1A1 tank and all these other things. I remember taking a Jane's Defense Weekly with me on my honeymoon and studying military <laughs> hardware, which my husband was not really, really gets you in the mood. He <laughs> was like, seriously? <laughs> but, um, you know, so, so I think that was really important. And I, I think that I just kept pushing to be taken – seriously and you know which was sometimes hard because of my whole personality could be sort of the fun cute girl who just does lighter fare and so I think I was always fighting against type that's why I always hated the word perky Mm -hmm. because you know I found like well Bob Costas is short and cute and he's never called perky (laughs) and what is it you know it's so it's so diminishing Mm -hmm. you know it it, and and I think remember Susan Sarandon and in Bull Durham she's like baby ducks are perky or cute or whatever she said and I think it's a way to marginalize people Mm -hmm. honestly so I think I was very conscious of being typecast so I fought against that and and then as I continued in in TV news they needed to give, you know, more responsibility to women because we were, you know, we were there. We were making our presence known. And, you know, I could have taken that job on the Today Show and just been, you know, wow, I'm on the Today Show. I don't care if I do fashion and cooking segments. But I wanted, it was really important for me for viewers to see that I was capable, that I was smart. You know, I was always kind of trying to let people know that I was more than just a pretty face, which I really am, am not anyway, but that, that, that I had real substance mm-hmm. and intelligence and that, that I, I really, really was so cognizant of not being the second banana to Bryant Gumbel. Mm-hmm. And, and luckily, uh, they listened. You know, Jeff Zucker really helped me because he made sure 
you, you have to have somebody who's supporting you, mm -hmm. you know, because you can think you're the best in the world, but if you don't have male allies or allies in general saying, yes, we're going to make sure she has this opportunity or she's doing this interview and, and, and that she's a very important part of this show, and Jeff ensured that that was the How case. How did you... For, for our listeners who um, who are not necessarily trying to be the next Katie Quirk on the Today Show, but how how do you find your allies at work? How do you find your me mentor and the, your advocates? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think sometimes it just falls into place naturally. I think you can sense when people are supportive of you. And I think when you go to someone and you say, I'm really interested in hearing your advice and I admire what you've done or what you've achieved, that's very flattering for someone. And I think that that then makes them want to be invested in your success as well. So I think that if you see someone and you respect them, then ask if you can spend 15 minutes or have coffee, or I really think I could learn a lot from you. And then when you do that, have very specific questions that you've thought of in advance and see if you can win that person over and 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 I think that's a great way of establishing a relationship with someone uh, who can help you and give you good advice what, what I mean what what would you guys say Here she goes. I know but I'm no, curious I, I'm really curious um, like how, I how think, what do you tell people so I um I was always really big on like when so before the scam I was always really big on trying to get informational meetings with people I would just I would look for you know you know, I literally like look up when I was at NBC. Okay, it's not Jeff Zucker. Like he's not going to have time for me. But who are the people two levels below him that I could learn from? So I would just blindly reach out to people and say, like, I, you know, this is who I am. This is what I'm interested in. This is what I really admire about your career. Do you have ten minutes? And can I take you for coffee? Or can I come by with, when it's convenient for you? And that's how I built like a network for myself. And that's how, um, you know, ultimately lots of steps that led to the skim. Um, so I think. For me, like what I've actually seen happen, you know, at the skim, um, you know, it kind of goes on, on both the employer side and the employee side. Uh, the employer side, we have a, a part of our onboarding, we um, assign everyone buddies so that you actually have someone who is a colleague, maybe who doesn't work with you and helps onboard you and is like, I'm going to have lunch with you, you know, once a month for the first few months that you're here. And that immediately starts just like you have an ally that's kind of been assigned to you. And then maybe that's not your person, but that opens the door for how to talk to people that, um, you know, maybe it's not your boss. Uh, and then I think, you know, I've seen, I've been so impressed with like the mentor-mentee relationships we've seen evolve at our team. Um, and I think it's largely the way I see it work is people um, usually younger employees or newer in their career are admiring something about someone at, at on the team and say, can I ever just pick your brain about something? And that's usually how it started. Um, but it's definitely, I think, a mutual responsibility on both the work environment and the employee. Mm -hmm. I want to switch gears. Okay. Newsrooms in the 80s, not necessarily known for being too friendly to women or young women. Uh, get the broads out of broadcasting. Yeah. You mean that? Boys club. Um, but thinking about even recently, what's come out at NBC and CBS, over the course of your career, have you felt like the environments have changed? Do you feel like it's gotten better? Um, you know, you've had a, a firsthand seat to all of this that's mm -hmm. gone on um, in the past few years. I do. I mean, I feel like women have achieved a lot, <clears throat> and they are in, 
you know, really important positions. You look at Maggie Haberman, for example, at the New York Times, and Elizabeth Bumiller, uh, who's the Washington bureau chief. And, you know, you see these women ascend to these important positions. So I think it has changed. I think more recently, it, 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 they're the more subtle or less subtle uh, interactions between male and female employees that are really being put under a microscope. And, and I think that's a positive development. Um, and so I think just sort of certain behaviors that were, if not accepted, tolerated through the years, kind of uh, very insidious, misogynistic or sexist um, interactions or comments or even attitudes that are, are even more hard to tackle and un, unpack, um, have been able to exist or have existed. And I think now we're saying, hey, we're calling you out. You know, we call BS, as <laughs> Emma Gonzalez would say. And you can't have that attitude. You can't treat people like this. You can't marginalize them. You can't dismiss them. You can't exclude them. And I think, all sorts of little things are happening that create a better work environment for everyone. You are known as one of the best interviewers. Why are you a good interviewer? What makes you a good one? Well, I think that early on, I know Jeff and I, when I was at the Today Show, we talked about the importance of tone. You know, I think every interview you do requires a different tone, right? Sometimes it can be challenging and no nonsense. Other times, it can be welcoming and sympathetic and empathetic, right? So I think you have to kind of think about what is what are we talking about? How do I address, you know, how do I want to make this person feel? Or do I need to hold this person's feet to the fire? You know, a politician I'm interviewing may be very different than someone who's experienced a tragedy, obviously. So I always try to kind of think about tone. Um, and be very conscious of that. Um, I think it's the number one, well, there are a few things. You have to be prepared. I mean, pre there's no substitute for preparation, for really thinking about what you're going to ask. Now, some sometimes you can do a very extemporaneous kind of casual conversation, but if you have a goal in mind and you really want to elicit information and you don't have a you know mm -hmm. indefinite time period, I think preparation really knowing a lot about that person. You know, when I've been in situations where I don't feel like I have time to prepare, it just really knocks me off my game. I lose confidence, and then I don't feel like I'm in control, and then I don't feel like I do a good job. Mm -hmm. So I hate that feeling. And so I think really, really taking it seriously and preparing is super important. Do you get important. nervous? Do I get nervous? Um, a little bit. I get more nervous when I'm not the one in control. Like when I go on like Stephen Colbert mm -hmm. and I have no idea what he's going to ask me. Are you nervous right now? Because we're in control. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I know you all, so I feel super comfortable. And uh, but, but sometimes, you know, if I were doing a live interview with a world figure, of course, of course I'm nervous. But do you? Because, like, I you I don't mean, look, you, you never, never looked look it. nervous. Oh, yeah, I'm nervous. I'm dying inside. Do you get, <laughs> do you get nervous? Like, do you have to psych yourself up to ask 
the question that you know is going to hold someone like the feet to the fire question or is that just natural to I you? think for me it's just I feel like it's just that is my job you know that's my responsibility and I feel that I I would I would prefer to make the person slightly uncomfortable or or you know really go in there and and ask something specific and make that person explain himself or herself than the let then to let down the audience the, the audience is depending on me as their proxy uh recently um or this week actually you um did a special uh podcast around the sarah palin um anniversary of your interview mm-hmm. um and i everyone can remember that interview when you asked you know what what do you read and when it comes to establishing your worldview, I was curious, what newspapers and magazines did you regularly read before you were tapped for this to stay informed and to understand the I've world? I've read most of them, again, with a great appreciation for the press, for the media. But like what coming, ones specifically? I'm curious that you... Um, all of them. I mean, I always laugh about that being the memorable moment. Yeah because it was kind of a throwaway. Well, that's why it was my question. Did you know when you asked that question that that was going to be the moment? Like no, that? no, I think maybe it was just the culmination of a lack of confidence in her intelligence and policy knowledge that seemed to like that seemed to epitomize sort of why maybe she wasn't ready to be you know, a heartbeat away from the presidency for a man who had had melanoma four times and, you know, was going to be the oldest president ever elected, right? Mm-hmm. So I think she was under particular scrutiny. And um, yes, that was just kind of getting B-roll, just getting a shot of a walk and talk that we needed. But I was curious because she was so ideological and and had such strong views about the world and the role of government and all kinds of things that I really was genuinely interested in what shaped that, you know, where mm-hmm. she came from and what she read and how that influenced her. Because I think we're all influenced by what we consume, right? It yeah. helps shapes our shape our opinions and attitudes. And um, it was it it was surprising that that got picked up. But I think it's because she couldn't name one, mm-hmm. or she refused to name one, or she was ag- so aggravated with me she didn't want to name one. And I think that that just indicated a lack of intellectual curiosity and and engagement Mm -hmm. that was disturbing for voters. What's the most memorable interview you've done? Is that it? I mean, that was, I think, impactful. I think, you know, I I would say the interview I did after the massacre at at, uh, Columbine High School. Then they shot uh, my friend uh, Matt also. And then you... You play dead, Greg. Yeah, um, I, I just ended up laying on the floor. I, I was I was praying to God. I think because of all the elements in that interview, it was like four o'clock in the morning because it was uh, the Today Show. So maybe it was five o'clock in the morning. It was pitch black, and it was snowing in April, mm-hmm. and it was so. It was so intense. I mean, this was a father who had lost his son the day before. This was a young man who had lost his sister. The fact that they even did this, I think, is pretty mind-boggling. And it was Matthew Scholes and his son was Isaiah, and Craig Scott and his sister was Rachel. And here also 
visually, they were such polar opposite. Matthew Schultz was this big, burly, African-American guy with lots of rings on his hands. And I think he had a, a cowboy's jacket on, if I recall. And Craig Scott was this kind of a fairly diminutive, blonde, sort of, maybe he was in 10th or 11th grade. And the fact that they shared this incredibly raw grief and loss and then supported each other by holding each other's hands, uh, it was really profound. It was, uh, it sort of transcended an interview. It was like witnessing grace. And it, it was, I mean, I'm, I get emotional about it now. It was just so moving. And they were so, like, the fact that they were generous enough to share this intensely personal pain, um, it, was, it, was, it was remarkable. And so I think I remember that so, so well. I remember watching that, yeah. like, yesterday. Who haven't you interviewed yet, but you really want to? I really would like to have an opportunity to interview President Trump. You know, I went to his wedding. I've known him for years. When I was on NBC, I knew him because of The Apprentice. He's been actually very kind to me on a number of occasions after Jay died. And when Carrie or Ellie had her birthday party, I think, at Woolman Rink, I I was trying to get it to op- stay open a half hour later, and I, you know, I called him, and he was really nice about it. it. Might have been Carrie's party, I can't remember, but you know, so I've I've known him through the years, and gosh, I just wish I could go and talk to him. Have you and, requested an interview? I mean, not really, because I'm not sure what platform I would put it on, and. I think for him. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll gladly put that up if for you're you. not if you're not a cable news anchor, yeah. I don't think he knows you exist. You know, I I tried to explain to him how Yahoo had a very big reach. So I guess I did during the campaign yeah. try to get an interview with him. If you get that interview, we are happy to provide a platform <laughs> okay. for you. And speaking of things that we're working on together, getting there, you've interviewed amazing women. Um, from actor, writer, producer Issa Rae to Instagram fashion director Eva Chen. What were some of the li- through lines and themes that you picked up on? Well, I mean, I, you mentioned Issa. So, you know, I, she's a really smart, thoughtful person. I found her so thoughtful talking about representation, talking about challenging the archetype of sort of that has been so omnipresent in media about young black women. You've been partially responsible for redefining what blackness is, right? I mean, was that your goal going in? I did want to just have a new archetype, like one that I identified with because there there were a bunch of stereotypes. As for me, it was just about putting something in the world that I, I could relate to. I mean, Issa never really departed from that commitment to stick with her vision of what she wanted to create. And, you know, following your passion for Eva Chen, not going to medical school, when it was just, she said it was like putting a square peg in a round hole. It just wasn't her. How do you help teenage girls who say, gosh, it just makes me feel bad about myself? It's hard to be a teenager. And the message I always had when I worked at Teen Vogue was like, you have to find your passion and find what makes you happy and then like dive into that. You know, I learned that, that you really need to listen to that inner voice. She obviously found her sweet spot and and loves it and is thriving. So she listened to that inner voice. Bethany Frankel, you know, had an idea and she like just went for it. She is so fearless. 
What's the best advice you ever got? Uh, from Ellen DeGeneres. You will keep making the same mistake until you learn the lesson. She does not care what anybody says about her. And I admire that because I am so sensitive. And if people criticize me, I take it to heart. She has just got such a thick skin. Mm -hmm. And I admire that. You know, she's like, screw you people, I'm doing it. And she would not, she kept going into this very male-dominated industry, the, the liquor business, and got them to to do her skinny margarita, you know? So, uh, and, and, and I think persistence is really important and not giving up. Jennifer Fisher went to all these jewelers in the Diamond District to get them to, to make a prototype for her and she had to knock on a million doors. Skim for me how to start your own business. Do it with your own money. Don't do it with partners. Don't be afraid of rejection. Do your own thing, listen to your gut. That's normally what's right. So I think it's like that doggedness and refusing to take no for an answer. You know, if, if I had listened to that network executive who had said, I never want to see her on the air again, I could have interpreted it as, well, I'm just not good at this, so I better find something else. But I instead said, well, wait a second. Who, says who? That's one man's opinion, and maybe I'm not now, but I will be. One of the um, kind of hallmarks of getting there is that you actually like spend the day with with the people you're interviewing and and kind of go through the routines of these women and yeah. go to their office and or in, in the case of the barefoot contessa you went to to her house. Uh, if we were doing an episode on getting there with you and mm -hmm. you are we were interviewing you, what is your day? What would we find? Well, on a good day, maybe you'd go to the gym with me <laughs> and lift some weights. What time? <laughs> Probably like seven. Uh, yeah. Is that too early? Uh, I mean, it's okay. We just, I don't want to talk. Then. I mean, oh, I, yeah. I would like to say to you, I get up, I meditate for 20 minutes, I drink a green juice, I go to the gym, <laughs> I write a nice email to someone when I don't want anything like Diane von Furstenberg yeah. does, right? She writes three emails yeah. a day yeah. just saying hi. I, 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 it's I, a it's such a great thing. How can we make I, ourselves do that? I don't know. I don't know. I love it, you know, because so many of these are, so many relationships sadly are transactional, right? Like just saying, hi, I'm thinking about you or anything. But um, but truth be told, uh, I wake up, I look at my phone, I read the skim, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, look at some other newsletters that I'm interested in, and um and then I just get going. But sometimes I exercise. I don't have any specific routine every morning. Um, so I think we would maybe on as like we'd exercise together. Uh, maybe I'd make some calls. We'd go down to my office. You know, I think one of the things that's interesting in my life is I don't have a routine. Yeah. You know, every day is different. Some of the time I miss like the regularity of being on television, like every day for two hours, whether it was my talk show or the evening news or the Today Show, because it really does help you build structure in your life. And I think you have to be much more disciplined when you're doing a multitude of things. So you might go with me to do my podcast and you might, um, you know, do something interesting. We might have a PSA shoot for Stand Up to Cancer. So I think I think we would have fun, but no no day would be the same. And that's what I think makes life interesting for well, me at this I point in my life. I actually think that really encapsulates how you got there, which is you've always been curious and uh, fearless and not afraid to learn new things. And so I think that probably is why there's so much variety in your day. Um, I think that's all we have time for today. Katie, thank you so much. Well, thank, thank you guys. You. I really, uh, this has been such a fun morning. So thank you for inviting me to the skim. And everyone who's listening, check out Getting There.
Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra.